It has been my observation that uh, one of the Christian gatherings that still occurs that is maybe most, uh, where you are most likely to hear mistaken or bad theology, believe it or not, is the funeral. The funeral. And it's okay, you can laugh. We can laugh about this right now. We're not at a funeral right now, okay? So we can, we can chuckle about this a little bit. Personally, they can be sometimes painful experiences for me as a pastor because especially during the open mic time, I go into fight or flight. You know, I just want to run and leave. But there are times where I'm like, oh, that's not, mm, that's not true. That's not quite right. And this isn't the time to correct that, right? So you're kind of hearing it and just going through it like, oh, okay, note to sell, future sermon. Uh, so that's something that is going on. Um, and, and you just realize that there are sometimes false hopes that people are clinging to right? Another thing that happens at a funeral sometimes is, uh, you know, you're listening to people speak. Everybody wants to speak well of the deceased, and so they're practically venerating them to sainthood, you know? And you can be sitting there thinking, are we talking about the same person? You know, because the woman that you're describing as lovely was grouchy to me. You know, I didn't get cookies. I got screamed at, so that can be a little weird. But I think sort of this common experience at a funeral, a common occurrence is where Many will speak with a personal assurance of something that is not quite true, doesn't emanate from Scripture, or isn't true yet. So I'm not trying to make fun of anybody or make anybody feel bad for anything they might have said. I'm not picking on anyone. But it, re- it just it reveals to me that we have a bit of underdeveloped theology and something of an area where we need some instruction. So I'm happy to have this opportunity today without a casket in front of me to be able to speak candidly about the Christian's hope of life after death. What we can expect for ourselves and what assurance we have for those believers who have gone on before us. So we turn now really to the last two stanzas of the Apostles' Creed. We finish it today. And so we start with this first one, the resurrection of the body. I'm going to start with some of the most, uh, maybe the most common uh, misperception here, misunderstanding, and it's around this idea that the resurrection of our bodies will not be immediate. Did you know that? So for starters, at this point, we kind of look at the composition of mankind. What is it we are made up of? How has God uh, created us? And as humans, we will say, at least fundamentally, we are material and we are immaterial. Uh, some would say they would argue for a third category. They would, that would be a trichotomist who would say that we are body, soul, and spirit. But I'm going to go at the, the sort of the lowest common denominator that, that all Christians would agree to. I'm not trying to resolve that debate. That's not my topic today. But what we would all agree to is that we are at least, we're minimally material and immaterial. And that helps us actually to understand death just a little bit. Because death is ultimately the separation of the immaterial from the material. The soul separated from the body. It's also worth stating here that um, death is not a good thing. And you might be thinking, wow, Pastor Eric, that's brilliant. You know, thanks for clearing that up for us. Death is not a good th- I'll invoke uh, Han Solo here. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things, right? But what I mean by that is it's not a kind thing. It's not a natural thing. 
It's not, as some people say, just a part of life. It's not even God's creation. It's not his will or his intent for us. It's even fair to say that death is appalling to God, that he hates it. In fact, that is part of the reason why Jesus wept when he saw the grief of the sisters and the friends of his own friend Lazarus who had died. Death is a corruption. It is an intruder in God's good creation. In Ezekiel 18.32, God says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Death is called by the Apostle Paul an enemy, and in fact, the last enemy to be defeated. Now, it is true, and some of your minds might be going to the passage in Hebrews 9, where it says that mankind is destined to die, right? But we have to understand that only as a consequential reality. It wasn't God's intended reality. It's the reality that we brought upon ourselves as we brought sin into the world and death with it. So here's that passage with that understanding, Hebrews 9, 27. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So let me ask the the question, sort of the big question here is this. What happens to us at death? Right? That's the million-dollar question. Now, I'm going to start talking about this in the realm of pets because it might be just a little bit easier in some regards here. But uh, probably all of us have, have lost uh, a pet at one time or another. And this is a creature that we loved and cared for and found delight in. And maybe you were there and witnessed the moment that life left its body. If I can sort of tap into that experience um, I'll share my own story with you uh, on that subject. We had a yellow lab named uh, Gunner, and he was, a great, he was a great dog. We loved him, and he had some issue one day. He was in pain and distress and couldn't figure out what was going on. Turned out it was a bowel obstruction. But I remember watching him through the night thinking, I don't know if he's going to make it through the night. When does the vet open? i got to get there. And so I remember that morning I had the kids come down and said, I need you to come and say goodbye because I don't know if we're coming home with him. And I scooped him up, he couldn't even walk, and I put him in the back seat of the truck and drove down College Road to, uh, to our vet. And uh, right about uh, Kramer's Field, I heard that distinctive sound of that last breath. And I wasn't even looking at him, but I could hear it. And so I arrived at the vet just as they opened. I'm bawling. I go to the back seat, I pick up my dog that now does not have life in its body, which is a strange thing to see a body without life in it. And I, again, I'm just, you know, blubbering, uh, and I'm walking up to the door, and they see me coming, and they come out with a cart, and they said, we'll take it from here, Mr. Johns. And, you know, we're very gracious. They disposed of the body. And without even being asked, they made, I'm going on longer than I intended to, but they made little paw impressions And they sent them back to the house, three of them, one for each of our kids. I was like, you got my business for life. I am coming here. You guys can take care of my death for that matter. (laughs) 
Well, when life leaves body, it's a strange phenomenon. And I think there is a lot of uh, sort of confusion about this, this question of what happens to a person the moment after their death. When life has left their body, where is it? Where does it go? So let's start with what's true. The Christian, one who has placed their faith in Christ as their Savior, the Christian who is dead is immediately present with the Lord. Praise God. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul assures us of this. He says, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. The second thing that's true here that I would highlight is to the degree that they were suffering in the body, that's over. Praise God. But now let's address something that's not true, and here's where the common mistake is. That whatever was broken in their body that some would believe that it is now whole or repaired or that they were somehow lame on earth and now running and leaping with God immediately. And I would say, no, that is not yet true. They await the resurrection of their bodies. There is a manner in which they are present with the Lord and yet not having, not possessing yet their glorified bodies which are to come. This we call, in systematic theology, we call this the intermediate state. That's sort of the, the title of that. And this, the immediate state, again, just addresses the nature of our existence between death and the time of receiving our glorified and resurrected body. But, but again, we have this assurance that we are somehow present with the Lord immediately with him. And we get this first from Jesus himself. Can you think of where? Yeah, thieves on the cross, the conversation there. Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us while you're at it. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, Today, today you will be with me in paradise. So that assurance that Jesus gives, first of all here, this contradicts sort of the beliefs of two other religions that you know, sort of get popularized or you hear about. One of those uh, would be the Roman Catholic view of purgatory. No evidence of that in the 66 books of God's word that we have. Uh, secondly, Jehovah's Witness would believe in what they call soul sleep. Uh, again, no evidence of that in the scripture at all. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. We have that assurance from Jesus himself and from the Apostle Paul. And how does Jesus describe that presence with the Lord? Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. It is a good thing. It is meant to be an assurance to the dying and to those who have lost loved ones. But... There is something far, far better to come. We will receive glorified bodies. Our bodies will be resurrected and reunited with the immaterial part of us. Or we would say it this way. The resurrection of our bodies is certain. It's certain. Um, the Apostle Paul, interestingly, to the city of Corinth, uh, a city steeped in sin, the sin city of the day, Las Vegas of the day, 
uh, and they had this mantra, and he basically says, your mantra is true if the resurrection isn't true. He says it this way, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, you better just live well in your body for all the pleasures it can give you. That's what Paul says. But we do, thankfully, have the belief and hope of a future resurrection. And we have a precedent for it, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that changes everything. The Christian's hope in a future resurrection is a hope anchored in something with a precedent. It's not just wishful thinking. We have one who has gone before us. The Apostle Peter uh, describes this in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Not a flat hope, empty hope, wishful thinking hope. A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So the point here is that our hope of this future reunion with a resurrected and glorified body has precedent, an anchor, a living hope, not just an empty hope. Um, Third point here. Our resurrected bodies, this is one of my favorite lines, there are going to be bodies to die for. Uh, I've actually coined this term myself, and I hope I become famous for it. I think it's a good one. Resurrected bodies will be bodies to die for. Bodies to die for. I'm looking forward to this. My son Gus is just taking up tennis, and uh, I used to play back in high school and college just recreationally. And I was like, cool. So I went down yesterday to buy a used tennis racket from a store here in town. And we went to the courts yesterday and we played for a couple of hours. And my knees hurt this morning. (laughs) They hurt. Um, And it was funny that his coach was on the court a couple down from us. And she kind of looked over and she came over to talk to me. And she said, Dad, you used to play tennis in high school, huh? Notice she didn't give me college level status. Uh, I had to tell her, I was like, no, it's been 25 years since I touched a racket and I only played recreationally. And she says, it's looking good, dad. And, um, and I just, I thought, she, she doesn't know. Like, and one of the things I, I was aware of myself is like, I haven't, I haven't played in 25 years. So I can feel the gap between when I was playing weekly and just trying to get out there and swing, you know, swing the racket with Gus yesterday. I should have been over there. I don't have any power in my backhand. I don't, you know, all kinds of things. I could feel the 25-year gap is what I'm saying. I can feel the fatigue. But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about these bodies to come, these bodies to die for. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What a great phrase. 
swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So I like his comparison here to a tent and a building. So let me Alaskanize this for us just a little bit. We've all tent camped in Alaska, right? It's all right. (laughs) It's just all right. Tent camping in Alaska, it's just all right. Uh, I like to think of the three Bs. There's the bugs and the bears and the bruises, right? That's tent camping in Alaska. How much more fun is it to have a cabin to go to? Something a little more durable, something that when the weather comes, yeah, we're inside and dry. Bugs, ha, we've got screens on the windows. Cold, mm, light the wood stove. Cabins are a much more enjoyable way, in my opinion, to camp in Alaska over tent camping. Paul is highlighting the enduring nature of our future bodies in contrast to our corruptible nature in these present bodies. So I'll ask you just to think of, you don't have to say it out loud, just think of and do sort of a a mental indexing of your own body and its condition right now and what it's doing to you. Um, Again, my body aches in the morning. My knees hurt after I play basketball or most sports. I've lost a little bit of my hair, a little bit. (laughs) uh, I've lost some energy, I notice now. I don't have quite the same drive that I used to have. Um, I'm not as strong or as athletic as I once was. It's frustrating to me to be a smarter athlete than I am physically able. To know I should have been able to do this, but I can't. I can't sleep through the night. I got to get up at least once, sometimes twice, and I don't want to overshare there, but that's the way that is. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I thought I might get that. Here's a new one. I wake up in the morning with cramps in my calves. Why is that happening? What are they doing? They're just laying there. They're doing nothing. And I wake up in the morning, and you guys have this too. As I'm approaching 50, some of you are well past that. You wake up in the morning, you're like, my arm, my arm doesn't work. My neck hurts or my back or something. And you, we, we call this in our house sleep injuries. Right? <laughs> it happened all by itself. But our future bodies are not made by human hands. Not the mere products of our genetic parents. They will not be subject to aging or decay. They will be evergreen. Our glorified bodies will be the handiwork of God himself. And we get hints of what these glorified bodies uh, may look like just by looking at the resurrected Jesus on earth prior to uh, his ascension. Uh, First of all, he's able to eat, though not needing to eat. And I'm like, that's heaven right there, right? That's all right. Thank God we're going to continue to eat. I like that. Uh, How about this one? Able to appear and disappear. Oh, man, I wish I had that now. 
I go into Fred Meyer and I see some of you and I'm like, oh, I just want to boop, just disappear. I don't, I don't want to have, I just want to get my produce. I don't want to have all the conversations right now. I love you guys, but you know, sometimes you just want to get your groceries. So some of you know what that's like. Ability to pass through doors and yet also to be physically touched or embraced. Able to be on earth and yet ascend into heaven a different kind of realm to pass between the two. Recognizable in some occasions and yet indistinguishable in others. And some of you introverts are like, yes, please, I'll take it. To don a mask, all right. And I would also suggest that these post-resurrection realities of Christ's body, his resurrected glorified body are kind of like hints of what's to come. In other words, I think it's possible that we get glimpses of it, but not the full thing, probably because of the disciples' limited ability to appreciate it, or maybe even that Christ is sort of accommodating himself to their perceptions, but maybe something less than his full glorification. Philippians 3.20 assures us, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We wait eagerly for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I can't prove this either. This is a speculation of mine. Everybody hear that? This is a speculation. I hold this open-handed. This is my reasoning with the scripture. But this is what I wonder about. I wonder if part of the glorification of our bodies increases our capacity to experience God as he is and gives us a new apparatus, an improved apparatus by which we can worship him fully. In other words, if Christ is the feature, the primary feature of heaven, then what kind of vehicle, what kind of apparatus will I need to perceive him and worship him rightly? And I think that's a part of what our glorification is about. Um, The church father Irenaeus said this, the glory of God is man fully alive, but the life of man is the vision of God. And this future with the Lord, with resurrected bodies for eternity is that completed. Let me put it to you this way. Uh, You guys know I love the game of basketball. Um, I think I would enjoy it more if I had Michael Jordan's body, his old body, not his now body, like the Michael Jordan prime, right? Six foot six, 48 inch vertical jump, cat-like reflexes, intensity. I would love the game of basketball even more than I do now. To be able to get by my defender and just go up and dunk would be so satisfying. My entire teenage childhood, I would have this repeated dream of me finally being able to dunk a basketball. And then I would wake up and I'd be laying in bed flexing every muscle I had. And um, maybe that's why I'm getting sleep injuries right now because I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm still doing this. I'm just not aware of my dreams. But similarly, I think that I love God now, but I think I might love him more and worship him better if I had a body with an increased capacity to be in his presence, perceive him as he is, and to express my adoration of him in that same way. So I wonder if our glorified bodies are not just new and improved for our benefit, 
but for the benefit of our worship of Christ, who is the center of it all. Think about what that might look like. A singing voice that doesn't just pass, you know, congregational muster, but that can hit notes and scales and octaves that we haven't even heard or imagined yet. The vision to not only see not just an improved vision to now see 2020, but perhaps to see dimensions of reality we've never witnessed before. A mind that is able to grasp the depths and the complexity and the beauty of God himself. Emotions, which are not just flawed as they are now, but able to give full vent for the true affection of Christ. Capabilities to serve each other in better ways, rather than the clumsy ways that we fail in now. I'm fairly confident that our glorified bodies will be this new apparatus by which we will worship the Lord Jesus Christ better than we do right now. G.I. Packer has said it this way, and the raising of the body means the restoring of the person, not just part of me, but all of me, to active, creative, undying life for God and with God, which is good. So in the raising of believers and reuniting us with glorified bodies, we might say that God completes our salvation. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we use the term salvation too narrowly. We might use it just to refer to that moment in time where somebody crosses the line of faith from unbelieving to believing, from not forgiven to forgiven. And we kind of just pin it right there. And there's truth to that. But there's much more to that as well. And if you have your notes, you can turn them over and look on the back. Or I guess I actually have a... I have, oh, I don't have it up here. So yeah, if you would look on your notes, I've got that slide in the wrong place. You see that um, umbrella back there. And I want to just work through this. This is what salvation really means. So when we cross over the, the line of faith, uh, when we go from unsaved to saved initially, we might call this justification. This is our legal status with God. We were once sinners, but now because Christ died for our sins, it is just as if we'd never sinned. We're forgiven, we're justified. He declares us uh, innocent. So that's justification. Sanctification is where we grow up into that status that God has conferred upon us, that he has achieved in Christ. But we mature into that while we are here on earth and in the body. Glorification is the future status. This is where we receive those glorified bodies and we are with him and we are like him. So another way we can say this is we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved completely. This is the umbrella of salvation and the arc of it throughout God's revelation. He will finish the work that he has begun in us. So now we come to our our second point here. Life everlasting. Life everlasting. This does not simply mean an endless succession of moments, but rather life even outside of time. Time is a creation itself. Uh, But I think the big question here for most people is this, not so much how long uh, will it be, we kind of have a sense of forever, but rather, what will we be doing? Will I like it? 
Um, I think for many people, they think of eternity with Christ in heaven. They imagine only an eternity, kind of an eternal church service. And unfortunately, that makes them think of hell rather than heaven, right? That sounds awful. We won't even get hunting and fishing illustrations, you know. So I think two important things we need to understand about life everlasting. The first is this, that there is continuity with the present world. There is some continuity. In other words, heaven, heaven now is, you know, paradise with Christ. But the heaven to come, the eternal heaven, heaven is on earth. Did you know that? The Lord's not going to do away with and dispense the earth, but he is going to remake it, restore it, redeem it. Heaven is a place on earth as the Lord comes again to man to restore what was destroyed in the fall. We will return to what we call the Edenic state, the Garden of Eden. In a sense, that condition, that that status will be renewed. And that doesn't just mean nude gardening or anything like that. So... It means walking with God in the cool of the day. Good, constructive work, creative work without the frustration of toil and labor. Uh, if, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to uh, Revelation 21 and 22. When we think about the future and the heaven to come, we often go to Revelation 21 to kind of read of its delights. But what we fail to do oftentimes is to read the next chapter, 22 to realize where this heaven is, heaven is on earth. And we see this, Revelation 22, Eden restored. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So what I'd like you to envision here again is this, that this, this eternal heaven is on earth. The earth will be renewed, not discarded. Heaven will be a return to the way things ought to be. The way they ought to be. Without sin, without the curse. Um, if you've ever found yourself concerned that you might not really like heaven as much as you're supposed to, I have a book recommendation for you. Uh, It's by Randy Alcorn, and the title, amazingly, is Heaven. (laughs) And to be honest with you, it was the first book I read on the subject that made me actually want to go there. There's another book on the back, and I've put an asterisk next to it, and I need to explain that to you. This one's by N.T. Wright. It's called Surprised by Hope. The reason I put an asterisk next to that is read that critically. I do not agree with um, some things in that book. But I think on that point about the future heaven, future eternal heaven, what that looks like. I think he's very helpful. But here's, here is something that, um, that Randy Alcorn uses in that book to describe the future heaven. In order to get a picture of heaven, which will one day be created on the new earth, you don't need to look up at the clouds. 
You simply need to look around you and imagine what all this would be like without sin and death and suffering and corruption. In other words, we will have a resurrected life in a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on the resurrected earth. That's what God is doing. So in short, heaven is not up there and the the eternal heaven will be down here where God again dwells with us. The second thing here, the last point is this. There will be discontinuity with the present world. Um, Two primary features of heaven on earth um, in the life everlasting. The first is this, the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. He will be the central feature of heaven. One of the most shocking teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, I think, is that there will be no marriage in heaven. There will be no marriage in heaven. Not just that we won't get married again, but that you won't be married to the person you're married to now. We'll all be single, or another way of saying it is, we will all be betrothed to Christ. And I think that could be a bit of a wake-up call for those who overemphasize Christian marriage on earth. Jesus teaches we'll all be single, so to speak. And this is a little shocking to me, because on the one hand, I cannot imagine... Being in heaven, the eternal heaven here on earth, and walking past Amy, and like, hey, I remember you. What's it been? Like 17,000 years? It's been a while. What do you think of my new body? You know, I, I can't imagine just passing her like, like she's just someone else. That's weird, right, spouses? That's weird to think about but I take comfort in knowing that the most important earthly relationship with me now even pales in comparison to the glory of Christ whose presence will be in. He will be the prime feature of heaven. Marriage is a teacher for us on earth. It is not eternal. It is a living parable for now and one that has an end. Uh, The last thing I want to say is this. Um, with this discontinuity, not only will Christ be the prime feature of heaven, but the, the, the discontinuity that we find in the future is the absence of sin. Praise God, the absence of sin. So for this, of course, we need to do this with clarity. So for clarity, we turn to the Latin, right? So if you take your notes and turn over on the back, I want to work through. This is something that St. Augustine developed, and I find it to be incredibly helpful. As he describes the progression that God takes mankind through. Our first status, the first status of mankind, Adam and Eve particularly, was what we call passe non capare. That is, possible for them to be without sin. Possible for them not to sin. That was before the fall. They could sin or not sin. And because they did, that moved humanity into a second status, which was non passe non capare, which means not possible not to sin. It means that all of mankind is in bondage to sin and requires a deliverer to come from the outside to rescue us, which is what God has done in Christ at the cross and the resurrection. That, if we have repented and received salvation through Christ, moves us into the third category, passe non peccari. This is where we are again, able to sin, able not to sin. Amazingly, God has given us the power not to sin. That is something we have now. But then finally, the last stage to come is glorious. Non passe peccare. That is, not 
possible to sin for you or for me or for anyone. And that is the glory of heaven. All things as they ought to be, where we are reunited with Christ and we receive our glorified bodies and live an everlasting life with him. Let's pray. Lord, when we look at what you're doing in salvation and its richness and its depth, not just about our sin here and now, but about mortal life being swallowed up in immortal life, about being with you, like you, and seeing all things that you've made as they ought to be and ruling in delight alongside you. We long for this. We do pray along with the early church, Lord. Maranatha, come quickly. Come and bring this everlasting life which we desire. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.